0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Kype,
1: okay, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Well, no, go ahead. Did you call me a goathead?
2: I did call you a goathead, head, <laughs> You know, Barry Bonds, and the reason I wanted Kype to leave this off, because he has a great story about Barry Bonds, Kuype's got one of the best home run calls in the history of the game and he got to call I mean, over 500 home runs that Bonds hit right so Bonds used to always tell him that I made you and you know what he was probably right but
3: he made me too I don't even need to tell you about these two voices you know them as well as any fan base knows its broadcasters Kruk and kipe have that chemistry because they run the spectrum from teammates to broadcast partners to now, best friends, that chemistry is on display in this conversation, like always. Keep an ear out for what happened between them right after the Giants won it all for the first time in 2010. We go inside Kruk and Kite's Giant Moments, now. now, now, now. This is Inside Giant Moments, presented by T-Mobile. Our franchise has countless memorable, iconic moments. Join Mark Willard as he connects with our former players who lived these moments. To relive the emotions,
1: the stories, and the joy.
3: Kruk and Kite join the Inside Giant Moments podcast. We've all been looking forward to this one uh, quite a bit. So first, let me just welcome both of you in. Guys, thank you so much for doing it. No worries, Mark. No worries. No worries. No worries. No worries. Guys, I mean, it's an amazing story. It's so much more than baseball and broadcasting. I'd love to go back to to when it starts. So in 1983, Kruk, you arrive. Kipe, you've already been there for a year with the Giants. Kipe, did, did you know each other already when when Mike joins the team, or is the, is that when the friendship is established?
1: Well, the only way I knew him was when I faced him. Uh, I faced him more in spring training because – the Cubs were in Arizona, and we were in Tucson. The Cubs were in, in Phoenix. Uh, so I faced him more in spring training than I did in 1982 when he was with the Phillies. Uh, I think I faced him four times. Uh, but to actually have looked him in the eye, shook his hand, no. Never met him in my life. Uh, other than, you know, standing in the batter's box and he's standing out of the mound. Uh, but it didn't take very long for us to realize that we were kind of cut from the same cloth as far as uh, hanging out, laughing at the same things, and enjoying the same things.
3: And, and Mike, what, what about for you? What, what do you remember about the establishment of, of the friendship?
2: Well, when I, I played against him when he was with the Indians in spring training, and I thought he was a peacock. You know, I mean, I, I, he, his uniform was perfect, and it, he didn't have a hair out of place. I loved watching him take infield. I mean, that was really fun. I mean, you know, infield is such a, a lost art. But uh, when you had guys that, that you knew were really good defensive players, it was fun to watch them take infield. And I knew of, of Dwayne's reputation because a guy that I had gone to, to Cal Poly with, Dave Oliver, was a third-round pick by the Indians. And he was always a level below Kite. So, I mean, I was always rooting for Ollie to be the guy who would be in the big league. So, and I didn't know Kype. And, uh, so I was, I, I wasn't a big fan. And, and then I saw him in spring training for the first time. And, uh, I got the whole reason as to why he was head of Dave Oliver. I mean, he, so, and I, and I, I was watching him with a with sort of a negative eye, critically. And, uh, you know, watching him with the glove, I'm just, I, I totally get it and whatnot. But I didn't like playing against him because, he was never a guy you could get out in one or two pitches. It was going to be a seven, eight, nine pitch grind, and then he was going to roll a ground ball through the right side of the infield. And there, I was, you know, I, I, he ticked me off. But when I came over in '83, like Kipe said, it didn't take long. I mean, you, you can identify guys in the, in the clubhouse that you're going to be friends with immediately. And, and Kipe was on that list. Plus, you know, he wasn't an everyday starter, you know, he and I, I was a starting pitcher. So, you know, the days that he wouldn't start, he and I would be sitting together on the bench. So you get to know guys and our conversations would be about the game. And uh, and then, you know, we would, uh, and we became friends.
3: Kype, at that time, I know you're still playing, but you're you're certainly dabbling with some, some work at, at KNBR and in the media world. So is, is the idea of a post-career, in broadcast already in your view at that time yeah i think i I think what you try to do
1: is you start to see the glow of your career dim (laughs) you start to figure out what am i going to do when this is over with and none of us in those days had made enough money where we could just sit back and and, uh, you know, live off our savings account. You know, that wasn't going to happen. We were all going to have to work when we were done. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the first half of my career, I said, well, you know what, I'll stay in the game. I'll manage or coach. And then I realized about halfway through my career that that, uh, that was not going to be for me. Uh, and then, I, you know, I, the, the day I got out of the game is, is the same year that I got married. And I was going to ask my wife, to sit in some little Hobunk minor league town while I'm riding a bus, that probably wasn't going to happen either. <laughs> so I was lucky enough to have uh, a pregame show when I was still playing. Uh, and then after a couple of years, I did a, a little bit of a postgame show. Uh, and it kind of got me into the into the world of broadcasting where when I got out of the game, the Giants – people that were in the front office realized I had dabbled in this. And then when an opportunity came up, uh, they gave me a chance. And, uh, and from that point on, you know, we were rolling, you know, that's the only, wasn't a difficult time for Mike and I, but there was a time when he was a player and I was part of the media, Uh, you know, from 86, 87, 88, 89, you know, we're still great friends, but yet, I'm media. And the great thing I appreciated about Mike is he never looked at me like that. You know, he always looked at me like we were still teammates. Uh, So, you know, when I walked into that clubhouse, even as a former player, but part of the media, uh, I never was looked at like I was part of the media. And like I said, I will always appreciate that because Mike's voice in the clubhouse was louder than everybody else's.
3: (laughs) Did you ever have any moments where you felt like you needed to pause before you you made any any comments about these guys who all were your teammates just right before then?
1: You know what I found out early broadcasting that if you're going to really make critical comments about anything, do it about the other team. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, you know what? Uh, you know. When you're starting out in this business, that's not the time to start second-guessing Roger Craig. Uh, So, no, I was not very critical at all. I was was as much of a homer as you could imagine. Uh, You can be a little bit more critical once you get a few games under your belt, but being overly critical is not something that Mike and I have ever done.
3: Uh, Kruk, when did the dugout broadcasts start?
2: You know, kind of, look, uh, 1984 and 85, we weren't very good teams. And, uh, I mean, there was a lot of times where, you know, you'd have to just kind of move on to the end of the pitch and you'd entertain yourselves, and we would do it. I mean, it had to be the right dugout. It had to be Cincinnati that had long dugouts so you could sit on the far end, farthest away from Frank Robinson and Jim Davenport as you could get, or in Houston where, you know, you could sit on the way into the – dugout and, and the manager couldn't hear you so i mean there were, you couldn't do it at candlestick because the benches were too small so if you said something at one went into the bench frank robinson would hear you And that's not one guy you ever wanted to cross especially if you were you know having fun with uh you know <laughs> doing this broadcast and we would do it really for the entertainment of our teammates uh and it would always be the real broadcast we would talk you know Stan. we had we weren't very critical when we, and we still aren't. We were very critical back then, and we were talking about guys on the other team that we didn't like, you know, and, uh, it, and it became funny. And uh, so, but look, I, I want to go back a bit. We, we all knew playing with Kype that, you know, he had the pipes to broadcast. We all knew he was going to be a broadcaster because he told you he had, a, he had a show. But more than that, he had the, he had the personality. His wit in the clubhouse. I mean, he, he just kept things going. And at the end of every year, when we would have a, a team party, he would write out uh, a, a shtick about every guy on the team, and he would read this thing, and it, and it was the funniest thing that we had ever heard. So when he went right from the dugout, basically, to the booth in 1985, that was no surprise to any of us.
3: Dwayne, do you remember you, any of your shtick about Mike?
2: Well,
1: I don't remember at all having any shtick about Mike. I, I think Mike was was one of the guys that uh, got put into that category of oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave him alone. But uh, but you know it was I'll give you an example, and I'll never forget the one the one line I read about Max Venable, who was uh, you know now he's known as you know Will Venable's dad. But yeah. you know Max was a guy on our team that that he was a great guy, just a fabulous guy, really quiet. And, uh, and he had a great smile, but uh, I remember Max was having a great year. And, uh, and then he had appendicitis and, uh, and we lost him for like two months. And when he came back, he was horrible, horrible. And the one line I wrote about Max was, is he was a much better player with an appendix than without, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we had the stats to prove it. Uh, so it was just a little bit of short line about each guy and uh it was no harm, no foul. Everybody laughed and uh and then we went on with the party. So uh but no Mike Mike escaped. He did.
3: Okay, that's good. I mean Crook, you know, you, you're saying you guys knew Kype was headed for the booth. Did you know this about yourself as well? Like, when did it first dawn on both of you that, that maybe there'd be a future in this together? Well, actually, uh,
2: 1990, when I got out of the game, uh, Roger Craig asked me to be his pitching coach. Um, and he asked Bob Brinley to be a coach, and he said, I'll teach both you guys how to be managers because I think you can both manage. And uh, I had just had our fifth child and it was a he was an infant and you know the the sacrifices your family makes for you during your career with all the time that my wife was basically raising those kids alone i had to tell roger no i can't do it i i I needed to be home i i just and at that point in time when i said that i thought my career in baseball was over i thought i was i was done and uh and i went back to san luis Obispo where uh, we built a house and we were we're in the process of raising our kids. And uh, I got in the restaurant business. And, you know, so that was it. I I'd made my separation. I cut the cord. I was no longer a baseball player. On to the next phase. And uh, as luck would have it, in 1990, Joe Morgan, who was Type's partner uh, with Giants Vision, and uh, they were working television together, uh, got the offer to do ESPN games with John Miller. Uh, and those games were on every Sunday. So you know, it opened up an opportunity for me to do 14 games in 1990, just to you know come in and fill in for Joe. And uh, I was I was pretty rough around the edges, and uh, and Kite, Kite became my mentor, and uh, and uh, and Hank Greenwald and, uh, and Ted Robinson. I mean, I
3: had you know a pretty I had a crash course in, in broadcasting. In fact, what he was just leading to is that time where, where he's kind of getting started with KNBR, um, and you're both done playing, and then you leave for a year right as the Giants might be leaving San Francisco for Florida. So at that time, what were you thinking was going to happen?
1: Well, when when uh, when we got the news that, that Bob Lurie had sold the team and we were going to Tampa, uh, our front office, Corey Bush, uh, basically told the broadcasters, you know what? You guys are going to have to go out and find jobs. The only announcer that's going to go to Tampa with the Giants is going to be Hank Greenwald because he still had a year or so left on his contract. So uh, so I went on and I got a job. I got a job with the Rockies their first year. About two days after I signed my contract with the Rockies, the Giants and Peter McGowan's group saves them and they stay. So how am I doing? How am I doing? <laughs> And then, and then the Giants win 103 games, and the Rockies lose 115. Oh, how am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah. So, no. so I, not you know, good. You're uh, not doing good. <laughs> I'm not doing good at all because now uh, when the Giants come into Denver to play the Rockies, I'm looking at Mike. You know, they're laughing, and I'm thinking. That's where I should be. And, I, and I'm ticked off that he's having a good time. I want him to have a bad time like I'm having, right? So uh, so anyway, at, uh, the, the, the thing that saved me is whenever I would fly into Denver to do games, uh, I would stay at the, at the Weston Hotel where everybody stayed, and, it, and that's where the Giants were staying. And after one of those games in September – uh, it was a, it was a trip where the investors went on the trip. Uh, Larry Nibby, you know, Harmon Burns, I think Pat Gallagher was part of that group. Uh, we were all sitting in the bar, and they said, "Would you like to come back?" I said, "Would, would I like to come back?" <laughs> I said, "I'll break both ankles on my way back." But I still had two years left on my contract with the Rockies. Long story short, they let me out of it. Uh, uh, you know, Larry and I talked, and uh, so I, I had a chance to come back for the 94 season, which ended up being the strike year, but it was also the the first year for me where I was going to be doing every game with Mike because 93 was his first year where he started doing almost all of the games. So that's first year in 94 was
2: when we kind of got back on track. Yeah, and do, almost doing all the games is like doing 158 games. So, I, I mean, I basically was doing them all, which – and one of the things that was really cool about about my development is that I was doing probably 100 games on on TV, but the remainder of those games I was doing on radio, which was essential in my development. But when Kype went off to, to Denver, I, I was crushed. I mean, I, I it was like well that he's not coming back. So when he got the the he he got a contract to come back in 1994, I was psyched. And by then, I felt you know after having been a broadcaster for you know three or four years, I, I felt that I knew what I was doing. And I thought we were you know it was just like getting your best friend back, you know and and uh, and it was just so much fun. And 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 really from then on, I mean, I consider myself, and, and this is wisdom from Hank Greenwald, who told us both, before we made the commitment to being a broadcaster, you have to remember that people are going to remember you as a broadcaster more than, a, than an athlete. And if you're okay with that, then be a broadcaster. But if you're not, it's going to hold you back. And uh, when Kipe had come back in 1994, I mean, we had both made the transition. We were full-on broadcasters. And that's and that's when uh, that's when we got back together.
3: That's interesting advice from Hank. How did that sit with you guys at the time? Because I mean, your, your whole life, you've been you've been ball players. I mean, did you believe him right away that yes, uh, somehow? And, and my gosh, was he right when you look at it now? But but did you? How did that sit with you when you first heard that idea?
2: Well, well for think- me, it was. Um, you know, I, I had been in the game seventeen years as a player at age 38 and now I've got five kids and, uh, I don't have a job. So, uh, and the other thing too is, is even prior to that, I would go to old teammates who had retired and I'd go to their house and you could tell when a guy is struggling with retirement, you could tell when a guy, you know, is a former player and he's coming back to the ballpark and he's still expecting to be treated the same way he was when he was playing. And, uh, and this just in observations that I made was I, I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna do that I, I I was when I left as a player I, I was not go, I was gonna redefine myself basically. Plus, you know, my wife told me you're not you're not gonna make our house a, a museum to to what you once were. We're not doing that. You know, you need to move on, which was great wisdom. So when Hank had told us that, you know, I I would. I had no problem with it. I really didn't. I was happy with what I did in my career. I, I wish I could have done better. I wish I could have played longer. We all say the same thing, but I was uh, was really willing to go into another another phase and and, and, see, and seek a new identity. I, I felt I felt that was essential to mental health and uh, being able to cope with uh, no longer being a player, which is not an easy thing to do. But so when he told us that, I, I, it was easy for me.
1: Well, I, I agree Yeah, how easy. would you answer?
2: Yeah, it was, e- it was easy for me, too, because
1: I hit all the plateaus. And, uh, and I enjoyed almost all of the plateaus, uh, you know, from being a guy that played every day for six years. And I loved that plateau. And then I hit the plateau where, uh, you know, I got hurt. And now I'm not playing all the time, but I'm still playing a significant amount of time. And then I hit the turd stage, and that's the thing that I didn't like. That
2: stage. Uh, hey, we all day. hit the turd stage. <laughs> it's, so, it's inevitable. You know, once,
1: I, once I hit that stage, then I was ready to move on to, like Mike said, right, what's out there next that we can be really good at? And, uh, and you know, for us, I'll speak for both of us, it turned out that we were lucky enough to find something that we were good at. And it helped me forget about the turd stage. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and, uh, and if that's what Hank meant, then, uh, then he was exactly right. Because, you know, Mike and I talk about our playing days all the time, but, uh, but we don't talk about them nearly as much as when we talk about what's going on right now.
3: Uh, that time that you guys are referencing, uh, Barry Bonds has has obviously just arrived. Also, the the previous year, and I wonder from both of you how you see that that arrival uh, as as shaping the the future of Giants baseball and really shaping the next fourteen years of what you guys would be would be doing on air.
1: Okay, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Mike.
2: Well, no, go ahead. Did you call me a goathead? I did call you a goathead, one. <laughs> You know, Barry Bonds, and the reason I wanted Kite to leave this off, because he has a great story about Barry Bonds. And, I mean, he told us both this, but Kite's got one of the best home run calls in the history of the game. And he got to call I mean, over 500 home runs that Bonds hit, right? So Bonds used to always tell him that I made you. And you know what? He was probably right. But he made me too. I mean, we're sitting here talking about, arguably the greatest player that I ever played. I mean, this is coming from a, a, a city that appreciated the, you know, Willie Mays, who's always been considered in San Francisco to be the greatest player I ever played. Well, you know, we're watching another guy come. He's the, maybe the greatest, left-handed player ever in the history of the Bay area. And, and Mays is the right-handed greatest ever player. whatever. We're watching a guy who's, who is exceptional. And, uh, and people were turning in to watch the broadcast because of him. And it, it, it got us a lot of exposure when people, you know, being on the West Coast is great as a broadcaster because people on the East Coast watch their game at 7 o'clock. Then at 10, 10.30 when the game's over, they flip over to the West Coast games. And they were watching Giants games because of Bonds. So in essence, Bonds, when he would tell us that he made us, he was absolutely right. But what a great era to be a broadcaster in, to be able to watch and talk about his career.
3: Kype, how'd that conversation go with Bonds? I made you. Yes. You know I made you. You know I made
1: you. Uh, we're sitting, uh, we're sitting on, uh, our wagon, about ready to be involved in our third World Series parade in uh in twenty fourteen and and we're sitting there, Mike and I, and we're, you know, proud as can be, and it's kinda of half and John's there. Bonds walks by and he looks up at the three of us and he doesn't even say hi. He said, I made you guys and you know it and he just kept on walking. <laughs> 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 we couldn't argue with him. Yeah. So anyway, but you know what? It wasn't he was always the guy that even if the team wasn't very good, people were still going to be able to see four at-bats. And maybe after pitchers pitched around and maybe they'd see two or one. But they were at least going to see him stand in the plate. But then when the team improved, like the year that they had Bonds, Kent, and Ellis Burks back-to-back-to-back in the lineup. I mean, that's you got to watch that. I'm sorry. And uh and there were two or three years like that where the teams were so good, you know, World Series good, playoff good, that uh that it really wasn't just Bonds, but he was the common denominator for all of those years, absolutely. And then, you know, the closer you got to the the certain number home run numbers, and then every one of those numbers became massively compelling. Uh you know what, and one of the games I'll never forget is the last game he played. Uh when his last at bat, he almost hit one out, his last at bat to the opposite field. And uh when he walked off that field, it was it was we were both teary eyed because uh the memories we had with him were absolutely incredible.
3: By the way, kype, that home run call, how did it develop?
1: Well, you know, it it started out uh it started out with Matt Williams uh, because Matt Matt would hit home, a lot of home runs, and he hit a lot of them in different ways. But his signature home run was a ball that he would hit very high and very deep. And you had a chance to really draw out the home run, you know. He hits it high. I mean, you could even let it breathe. He hits it deep. And uh, and then you know you can really nail it at the end, and he hits it out of here. And then of course, once Matt Williams departs, you know Barry Bonds, you know walks in, even though they were teammates for a little while, and uh, and he hit all kind of different kind of home runs. So I mean I was really lucky. Uh, I got to be involved with guys that hit the ball out of the park, and uh, and they would do it in dramatic fashion. Uh, and you know the home run call just stuck. I mean I I think fans will tell you if they like it. They'll certainly tell you if they don't. And uh, so it just kind of stuck.
3: You know, in uh, you guys are referencing how the team is is getting good right around this time in 97, I think, is when they really start to put out a, a pretty consistent winning product. Dusty's got him pointed in the right direction. Kruk, you can weigh in on this first. Like, wh- What do you think made Dusty such a great fit?
2: Well, you know, we played against him. We played with him. Then we watched him become a hitting coach. And uh, I was impressed with him at every step that I ever came and crossed his path. I just thought he was a natural because of his ability to communicate. He's bilingual, speaks fluent Spanish. Um, but he, he's, he's just a good read of people. If you've ever watched Dusty Baker speak, you know, it's never prepared. He just goes out there and he starts talking. And. And he has an incredible ability to be able to plug into that moment, to wherever he is, to whoever he's talking to, and be compelling. And I think that uh, that is essential when you're a manager. You have to have communicative skills. But beyond that, you've got to have something to say. You have to have something that that big leaguer is going to stop and listen to. And I think what was impressive to him when he came over as a player you know, he, he, he made everybody better because of his intensity to the game. You know, there was no Jimmy jacking around with him. It was about how are we going to win, and everybody tightened up with him. And then he became a, a hitting coach, which you don't normally see when you have a, uh, uh, a hitting coach. Traditionally, hitting coaches would be guys that don't spend a lot of time talking to pitchers. They talk to hitters. Well, that wasn't the case with, with Dusty. He realized that you're going to take a lot of at-bats as pitchers, and he tried to make you better. So I love the fact that he tried to make everybody around him better, even if you didn't fall into his jurisdiction. So when it came to 1993 and the new the new regime had just taken over from Mr. Lurie and uh, the team had sold to Peter McGowan and the investors, and they were looking for a new manager, I was asked, who would you think could be good at being a manager in San Francisco and I thought Dusty Baker he's a Sacramento guy he understands the Bay Area he's he's a great communicator and uh, and I think he'd be a great fit and you know I, and then there were a lot of people saying the same thing um, certainly wasn't my recommendation that got his job uh, but it, it was just a, it was a perfect match and it was a perfect match to be able to handle that group of personalities that was assembled on the field, in 1993, which is one of the best Giants teams that I think I've ever seen.
3: Uh, I really no, thought, it, it, oh, go yeah, go it, ahead, cut.
1: Yeah, let me tell you something about Dusty. Dusty's a, a he's a chameleon. Uh, if you didn't know better, after you get to know him, you'd think that he was raised in Japan, <laughs> or the next day you'd think that he was raised in Venezuela. Or the next year you'd think that he was raised in the Dominican Republic or in the ghetto or in, in the most expensive neighborhood in Sacramento. He played all of those parts, and he wasn't acting. And that was the beauty of him. His, his personality is so vast when it comes to uh, different races and different types of people and their backgrounds. Uh, he was a natural. He was going to be a natural leader no matter what he did. If he wasn't in baseball, he'd be in politics, and he'd be really good at it, too. And we'd both vote for him. Right. Absolutely.
3: <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, it, it certainly felt at that time like he was going to get the organization over the top. For for the first time. And I mean, I think Kruk, for instance, I, I thought that about the 2000 team they lost in the opening round. But I'd love to get your thoughts on one of the the standout moments that year. And, and that's the snow home run, you know, in game two against the Mets. And Ted Robinson is on the call. But but your audible. Oh, no. As the ball as the ball actually landed in the first row up there uh, in the arcade. What, what was that moment like
2: for you? Well, it was magical. I mean, they they were down four to one, and uh, you know he comes in and Armando Benitez, who was the pitcher for the Mets, he's about as nasty at bat as and at bat as there was in, in all the National League that year, and uh, and you know I mean the, the Giants were favored. They, they they had the best record in the National League. I think they may have had the best record in baseball. So they were favored over the Mets, and here they are. You know it. it they're already trailing in the in the series one game to none against the Mets, and here here we are game two. This is San Francisco, so you know we're talking about a home field advantage in a five game series. This is a this is a critical game, and uh, and Snow comes up and and he he takes Benitez deep, and it was just it was unbelievable, and it, it hit. I mean, it was a home run by about two feet.
0: Two and one to Snow, The set by the right-hander. He kicks, he deals, Snow swings, high fly ball to right, hit to the corner, Perez chasing to the wall, it's gone, oh, no! it's gone, Snow has homered and we are tied. Benitez cannot believe it, and neither do I. In their new home, the Giants have just gotten their greatest gift, a Pac Bell Park special. 309 foot fly ball that landed just inside the right field pole and just on the grating atop the brick wall in no other park in the national league would that have been a home run and you know what he got all of it every bit of it it was fair by about five feet and it didn't even make the seats it landed right on the dark green grating atop the brick wall which by ground rule was a home run
2: and as soon as snow hits and he goes into his trot, he, he goes, I got this one. And it was it was a whole run by two feet. But the place went nuts. It absolutely went nuts. And and we went nuts. And it was just exciting. And the only thing wrong with it is that it wasn't the decisive walk-off victory. It tied the score. And then the Giants would uh, would go ahead in the 10th and they would win the game. But, I mean, it was – it was. I mean, I mean, this is a brand new ballpark. You know, that was defining its own history. This is their first trip to the playoffs in this ballpark, and then to have that kind of a home run, it was, it was amazing. But at that point in time, you know, I, and I've learned, you know, you got to control your emotion. You can't. I mean, it, what I said there, I won't say that. I won't step on, on my, on my play-by-play announcer. I, I won't. I mean, that, that's their moment. You, you know, as a. As a color analyst, just get the heck out of the way. And, and, and unfortunately, I kind of muddied up that call, but, but it was exciting. And it was something we'll never forget.
3: I mean, I, I think in listening to it as a fan, especially, uh, you know, Giants fan and, and, and what Giants fans think of you guys, I mean, there was something that was actually really uh, kind of fun and, and did capture the moment out of that. But that's interesting that you almost, you took that as a, a learning experience of what not to do.
2: Exactly, and uh, you know, I, I just think that you know we have our play by. How lucky am I? I I, I get to work with Dwayne and and uh, Dave Fleming and John Miller, and it, it's, it's just uh, I don't I, I'm the luckiest guy in in sport because of of the the play by play personalities that I get to go to work with, and I really believe, especially when I go back and I hear a call that I kind of step on and. I think you just need to get out of the way. It's their moment. And there is so much pressure on that moment to get it right. And if you become a distraction in the middle of that call, it's unforgiving. And and that's why I I get out of Dodge. There's just way too much pressure on these guys to get that call right. And they do. They don't miss it. But I just feel that it's it's my responsibility to clear out.
3: Okay, quick pause to thank our sponsor, T-Mobile it's never been more important to stay connected and T-Mobile has taken steps to support customers along with frontline workers nationwide during these uncertain times. They've been amazing. T-Mobile responded to customer needs by increasing network capacity, lifting smartphone data caps, and increasing data allowances for schools and students in the Empower Ed program. They've also committed to donate two and a half million dollars to over 100 local schools and Boys and Girls Club of America, which provides child care for our nation's first responders and healthcare workers, meals for families in need, and more. T-Mobile is committed to supporting customers, communities, and thanking frontline workers across the nation. Visit T-Mobile.com for more information. And now back to Inside Giant Moments. Kype, speaking of which, kind of preparing for those big moments, like in 2002 when the team is a couple of innings away from potentially their first world series ever in san francisco what was that like and 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 what are you guys preparing at that time well i
1: you know what look it was you know game six that crushed us and uh in that year the broadcast booth consisted of mike myself and joe angel because john was doing espn radio So, Joe Angel's innings to do play-by-play were the third, the fourth, and the seventh. And if you remember, the disaster inning where Spezio hit the home run came in the seventh. Mm -hmm. So, we've always blamed Joe Angel. Always. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what was his last name? I mean, come on. So, I don't think Mike and I had anything to do with that collapse in the seventh game. Uh, that was all on Joe Angel. As a matter of fact, he wanted to change his name for that series to Joe Gigante.
2: But, but it didn't work. Uh, I mean, th- this is a real conversation because we were giving him gas about it, and, and he came up with that response.
1: Yeah, Joe Gigante. Uh I think the worst thing you can do in the lesson that I learned, and, uh, you know, look, uh, I didn't broadcast in the 89 World Series. I was standing in the sidelines for that. So this is my first shot at at being in in that situation. And we had a, a great postseason. We had a blast doing these games. And Joe was great, don't get me wrong. But I got to the point in that seventh inning where I started counting out. All right, we need nine more outs, and this is gonna happen and uh it never got to to nine more outs. it never did and uh so I've learned a valuable lesson not to start counting outs you- you can't do it
2: uh i know we we had it we had the rings on the hands i mean you you think about it i mean game game five giants beat the angels sixteen to four yep. it yep. was a supreme scientific whooping. And now they're ahead in the game five nothing, and uh, it's the seventh inning. We're thinking it's over. Yeah. And then, and then, and then it all turned. And then, it, 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 we were stunned. We were stunned going to the ballpark. There was residue from Game Six into the clubhouse of Game Seven, and uh, and then it didn't happen. And, and it was just, uh, it was a stomach punch that all of us were not ready for that we all went through together and it, uh, it still hurts to this day. It does. I, I,
1: it took me a long time. Well, I put my head on a pillow not to think about those last three innings. And I, and I thought about them a lot. And uh, eventually, you know, you, you start to, to get over it. But, you know, even now I, I think about how close it was and, and maybe what it should have been for guys like Bonds who never won a world championship. You know, that's the one thing that's not on his resume. Rob Nen gave up his arm for this whole thing. Uh, you know, there are a lot of veteran guys. You know, Mark Gardner in that group. So uh, it happened, but uh, but don't start counting outs. That's the only yeah. advice I can
3: yeah, I mean, it's interesting because for you guys, from a broadcast standpoint, obviously you did get to experience it. But I think you bring up an interesting point, and we've had a lot of the guys from that team already on on, on this podcast. And, and we've sort of asked them, you know, like when the organization finally did get over the top in 2010, did that in any way sort of – lighten the load that was on you from 2002 and and you know they they answer it politically but you can tell the the answer the answer is no you know they're they're of course they're still not over it
2: well well i i think that um it, it absolutely it, it ended a lot of drama I mean, look they had won one in what 56 56 years right is that is that right they never won in san francisco right and uh I mean, 1989, we got swept. 1962, they lose a heartbreak series to the Yankees uh, in Game Seven. Uh, so 2002 was uh, was devastating. We're just thinking, is it ever going to happen? You know. And then there came a point in time in 2010 when you knew they were going to win it. You just the the tide was overwhelming a Texas Ranger team, and the wave. Of, of energy was was we you could feel it, and you knew that they were going to win this thing, and then you looked at each other and just like i 'll be darned, they they 're going to do it and when that happened, and you know all the pandemonium breaks loose i mean we were on the road in texas and and we were we were we were just completely caught up in the emotion of the moment as broadcasters, and we did a long post game show. And then we finally got back down on the field and in the Giants Clubhouse, where the celebration was still going up and It was just such an incredibly warm feeling that had washed over that room, that group of people, from the players themselves, all of their family members, the Giants investors, all of the front office people, all of the broadcasters, we were all under the same blanket of emotion we We, we couldn't hear the Giants fans in San Francisco. But we could feel them. We knew what this had meant to them, and it meant more to them than it meant to the people in that room, perhaps. Yeah. But it was just an incredible experience to go through, having finally lifted that that blanket of negativity off of this great franchise, and it freed them up. And it was just it was it was historical, and it was just our pleasure to have been a part of it. Um, you know Mark so yeah, one
1: uh after, after the dust had settled and you know the parade and you know uh I did an interview with somebody and they and, you know they were playing the you know what's one word to describe uh you know this world championship and and the only word that really popped up right away was relief. Mm. We're relieved you know we you know this is going to help us get over 89 it's going to help us get over 02 it may even help a lot of older folks get get over you know the series Mike's talking about in 1962 we're relieved because now at least we got one maybe we don't get another one we certainly didn't think we were going to get two really soon afterward so uh you know one of the things uh, uh so Brian Wilson strikes out uh, Nelson Cruz, and, you know, we're, you know, talking and, you know, doing what we have to do. And, uh, and, you know, Mike and I stood up and we looked down below, and there's two guys that I remember that were watching the game together. And it was Jim Davenport and Joey Amalfitano. And uh, you just kind of, you know, forget about Amalfitano because he didn't go through the stuff that Gabby went through with all those great teams, but a big smile on Jim Davenport's face. And he was a part of it too, because, you know, he's always going to be at that time a forever giant. And, uh, and I think for those people and for our fans, uh, whether they're old or young, uh, you know, Mike and I walked around town that off season and the testimony that we got from people that, about their moms and their dads who weren't around to see this, what they, you know, it it almost brought you to tears. It really did. And that's how important it was. That's why that parade, that parade was better than any of the other parades.
3: Well, I mean, there's there's nothing like your first.
2: In a lot oh, of yeah, ways. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, yeah, we, ways, we <laughs> joke about it. It's like everybody in the Bay Area got laid together for the first time. Unbelievable. <laughs>
3: Uh, true. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it's hundred percent true. It's hundred uh, percent true. It, it would almost make you want to do it again. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um hey Kite, before we leave anything bonds related, I, I gotta get the story of some of those calls and specifically seven fifteen and what happened to Dave Fleming's Mike and, and just what that was like for you when you found out what had happened. The pitch. Bonds hits one high. Hits it deep to center. Out of
0: here. 750. Bonds passes Babe Ruth. He is second on the all-time home run list. Well,
1: Mark, I I mean, Mike and I are—you know—we're gone. We're on TV, so we don't have any idea what's going on. So we finished all the stuff that we have to do. And now we've got to work our way into the radio booth because we have to do the post-game rap. So Mike and I walk into the radio booth, and we saw the Lee Hammer's face, and we thought he was dead. <laughs> we thought there was a dead guy running the board because it, he was the engineer. <laughs> It's, 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 it's not his fault, but it's going to be his fault, at least in his eyes, right? Uh, so, you know, look, we felt bad for for Lee. Lee Jones was in Hawaii. And I remember I called Lee Jones. I said, you're never going to believe what happened. And he, he didn't speak for like five minutes. He couldn't believe it. Uh, it was, I felt so bad for Lee. It wasn't his fault, although we've blamed him every day of his life since then. (laughs) You know what? The only thing that made up for that, where Dave Fleming didn't get to make that call, was Dave got to make Renteria's call home run in 2010, and he got to make the call in 2012 for the final out when Miguel Cabrera struck out. So so those two calls made up. (gasps) the glitch where he
2: didn't get to call it
3: uh, it's it's unbelievable i mean i still you can't
2: know. convince me that that wasn't some kind of conspiracy that, that there's no way there were so many people that did not want to see bonds break the record and they didn't want and you know what this doesn't even happen this the russians did it that's all i can come up with that's that's the that's the only explanation
1: i don't I, michelle or uh, mike i think I think Bud Selig did it. I think he had the big plug pulled. I really do.
3: You You can't can't convince me that there wasn't a
1: conspiracy. The timing was too perfect.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, because that never happens. And then to have it happen right there, it is. It it is. It's beyond belief. I I agree with you guys. Um,
1: (laughs) You should have seen Um, the top of Hammer's head. It was unbelievable. (laughs)
3: Oh gosh!
2: Uh, You could have fried an egg on it.
3: Oh gosh! (laughs) You know, at this time in in your careers, now now you guys are are firmly established as part of the fabric of of various sports, and you're starting to share with everybody that that you're the closest of friends. Now, I wanted to know: have you guys ever had any issues? Ever get sick of each other? Anything? No, nope. No, no,
1: we don't. We, I mean, we, we, we don't even have any guidelines. Uh, I mean, I know what my interests are. He knows what mine are. Uh, we do, I, I mean, the one thing, the common denominator to this is we have to laugh. And, uh, and if, you know, before, I mean, we have, we got three hours together before the game starts. And in that three hours, three hours Inevitably, we're going to laugh hard three or four times. And if we don't do that, then it's a bad day. Uh, and then, you know, throughout the game of the broadcast, we're going to have some fun. But uh, but that's always the one thing that that I think has drawn us to each other is uh, the, imbi- the ability to have a really good time, whether it's with our families together or whether it was on the road or at
2: Starbucks having coffee or at dinner with
3: the other broadcasters.
1: I mean, we were always going to have a good time, and there wasn't anything that was going to stop us from doing that.
3: What did you guys notice or think when the team hired Bruce Bochi?
2: Great hire. Great hire. Total great hire. We had, you know, I, I, you know we both played against bochi and uh, you, re, you respected him as a player, and you knew – Even when you weren't a teammate of his, you knew being an opponent of his that he was going to be a coach or a manager. He just was. I mean, he had that presence. And when we got to know him when he was the manager of the Padres, um, we had uh, just so much respect for the guy because he had time for you. He he would explain where he was with his team. Very open-door policy. And not just with his team and with media in San Diego – but for everybody, I mean, there wasn't a, any other place that he would rather be than the ballpark. There was never a moment when we approached him when he was with the Padres that he had something else to do. He'd stop, he'd take this, the the time, he'd give you an explanation. You develop a relationship, and then you watch the way that he managed the game and the way that he he maintained uh, his relationship with his players. So when we found out that he was going to be the guy. Once he was let go by the Padres and there was an opening in San Francisco, we thought, we hoped that he would be the guy. And when it, it went down that way, I mean, we were talking to each other on the phone. And if it's possible to high-five one another on the phone, we were doing it because we knew it was going to be great. And, uh, and, and as it turned out, he was every bit and better than what we expected. He's, he's one of the best managers in baseball history, and we got to be up close and personal with the guy as, as he had his career with the Giants. In, uh,
3: in 2010, Buster arrives for good. Kruk, I'd love to hear you talk on this because there was clearly a, a shift at that, at that time, but the pitching staff by then is already kind of coming into focus. So when you're looking at it, and you just mentioned what you said about Boach, Are are, are you feeling like the ingredients are are all there? Is there something you can notice at that time?
2: Well, we were all anticipating the arrival of Buster Posey because what we had seen from him really what our appetites. This kid's extremely gifted physically. He has presence on the field. He has presence in the clubhouse. You don't say that very often about a rookie, that he has presence in the clubhouse. He had respect the minute he walked in that clubhouse. He had respect from the pitchers on that pitching staff the moment he walked in. And, uh, we, you know, we just knew that this guy was, was a difference maker, very humble. He was not a guy that came in here and he was, uh, you know, uh, wagging his tail as soon as he walked in that clubhouse. He wasn't. Just the way he went about his business, the way that he prepped for a game and the presence he had in that batter's box and the presence he had on that field and uh, in the clubhouse, we knew that this guy was going to be a special player. And, uh, you know, we, we loved the Benji Molina era. We did. Yeah. And we watched the transition when Molina kind of handed over the baton. Benji Molina, two-time Willie Mack Award winner, I mean, he was a popular guy. We loved the guy. And he knew what was happening. And to his credit, you know he didn't try to stunt the growth of Posey this kid was gonna blossom and uh, I thought that that had everything to do with adding positive energy in that clubhouse the way that that Molina allowed the transition so it was just a a win win and and I think that was uh really one of the one of the, the the big components to putting together that team's chemistry that year and uh and Buster Posey i mean he hit the ground running and uh and what a what a unbelievable year he had.
3: And Kype, you uh you coined the term torture that year. How did that start?
1: Well they were playing so many close games and uh and Brian Wilson was being Brian Wilson and then there was this one particular game in San Diego where I think I think Matt King threw a I think he threw a, a one hitter and uh and the Giants had nine hits and uh, the game was, I think the game, and I might be off a little bit on this, but uh, I think there was a, a guy on second from the Padres with nobody out, a pop-up to Huff, who leaned into the stands, fell into the stands, caught the ball. The guy tagged from second to third, and the next guy scored on a sacrifice fly, and the Giants lost one nothing. <laughs> and I, I said after the game, I said, Mike, when we're done with Greg Papa uh, and we sign off, uh, let's – I'm going to go one, two, three, Giants baseball, and we're both going to say torture at the same time. And that's how we signed off, and that's how it started. And, uh, you know, it was a couple of weeks later where, you know, this is not something that that the Giants were that thrilled about. I mean, it's right. not a great word to be associated right. with your franchise. And I remember talking to some of the Giants people, and I said, no, we're not going to wear this out. Uh, if it comes up, you know, we'll say it. And, uh, and it did become a theme, and the players bought into it. And, uh, and then on that parade that we were talking about, I'll bet we saw thousands of torture signs, thousands. And, uh, and it just kind of took off, as those things usually do. If you try to stage that, those things it never works yeah yeah um, so yeah that's I mean, how it turned out
3: it, it, it's it, it's interesting that they it, and not surprising that that people in the organization were like uh not too sure but I, yeah I, the fans loved it they loved it they did they did yep um you guys had watched timmy all year uh, but the baseball world is that series is starting with the rangers he is buzzing about cliff lee before game one but Kirk, you made a comment a few minutes ago about how you could really just feel the swell of the Giants at that time kind of overwhelming the Rangers. Did you feel that before the series? How were you guys feeling about their chances going in?
2: Well, we knew that the Giants were, were strong. They, they Their chemistry had forged. Um, but I, I think that the the Rangers had just got through sweeping the, the Yankees and they, they smoked them. And they were just bludgeoning every every pitching staff that they were faced, and so they were extremely confident. And uh, and Ron Washington, and the uh, the skipper for the, the Rangers, he he was confident. And why wouldn't you be? You know, they thought it was going to be the you know the Giants. They were probably you know seated second to last in the tournament, and uh, and now here they are, in and they're going to play. Um, a world series and, and and they just didn't match up on paper right but we being around the team we thought their chemistry was tight we thought that this team they were they were ready for it and uh, you know we had watched uh, Lynchum dominate the Braves in game 1 and and uh, and be brilliant in and in, uh, in, in in the series with the Phillies and now here here he is opening it up against Cliff Lee and Cliff Lee was he was as batted dude there was in baseball that year on the mound he was unbelievable and uh, so we were we went in there and we didn't know what was going to happen we felt the team was was confident we were confident they had a chance and just like okay let's see how it all unfolds and and that's kind of how we went into it because of our respect for the rangers
3: you know it's interesting too as uh, as brian wilson strikes out nelson cruz at the end of that series i think both of you guys have captured and I think this is one of the things that's really awesome about the way you've you've done games through the years, you were clearly, and Kipe, even in what you said, uh, talking about the players through the years, talking about the fans within your call, like you guys seemed to, to be aware of uh, of everything that this had meant, not just for 2010, but but through the years, and so therefore you guys are kind of included in that. So how did it feel for you? I would imagine there was an attachment that was maybe at a different level than some other broadcasters would have had in that situation. Cruz
0: waiting on Wilson. And the right-hander for the Giants throws. Swing and a miss, And that's it! The Giants! For the first time in 52 years, the Giants are world champions as they come pouring out of the dugout. Circling Brian Wilson. The bullpen flying in from left center field, dancing, hugging, and you can't help but think that this group is celebrating for the Say Hey Kid, for Will the Thrill, celebrating for number 25, and celebrating for all you Giants fans wherever you are. Giants fans, this party is just getting
1: started. Oh, uh, there's no doubt. I mean, like I said, you know, we were thrilled. We were relieved. Uh, so I, so I, I make the call, and uh, and I said what I had to say, and I wrote a few things down to make sure that I got it right. And uh, now it's Mike's turn to talk. So I look over at Mike, and he's crying. <laughs> Way to go, partner! Thanks for picking me up here. <laughs> so he, he gathered himself and uh, you know, and talked about the importance of what was going on and and uh, and how it affected not just us, but but it affected everybody. I mean, at that point, Dave was Dave was out of the booth. He was he was he watched the final out in the dugout at the end of the dugout. Uh, and by the way. Just FYI, he was sick as a dog that, that game. He, mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, before the game started, he said, I don't know if I can do my three innings of play-by-play. He said, you may have to pick me up. And they're like, that's fine. And, and that's one of the reasons why his voice cracked on Renteria's home run. He had nothing behind his voice. He had no base behind it. Uh, but he got the call right, and that's the only thing that mattered.
0: 2-0 the count. Lee pinches. Renteria hits a high drive. Deep left center field. David Murphy going back. He's on the warning track. It is gone! Edgar Renteria has hit a three-run homer against Cliff Lee. And the Giants lead here in the World Series 3 to nothing.
2: You know, the thing that, that uh, happens in our booth, which doesn't happen anywhere, uh, you know, you have two teams within uh, two broadcast teams. You have one that does TV, and you have one that does radio. And for the most part, when the season ends and the national uh, networks pick up the, the, the playoffs, the, broad, the, the, the television teams, they, they just kind of go by the wayside. They may do some pre- or post-game, but they don't, they're not doing the game. They don't go into the booth with the radio voices. It just doesn't happen. And I think that's the one thing that we're all most proud of is that the four of us brought—we all did radio together—and we—that's the thing we're most proud of. The 2002, 2010, 2012, 2014—it was such an incredibly wonderful experience to be doing it with your guys that you that you love and respect and and. There wasn't one shred of of jealousy or one shred of, of 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 anxiety or or anger because this guy was doing this and this guy wasn't doing it. it. It didn't exist. All we wanted to do was tell that story, which was incredible, and that is the thing that we're all most proud of. What we were able to do together in those. World Series, even the one that we lost in 2002, to be able to be responsible for the story of that championship, of those championships, and, be, and to be able to do it the way that we did it is what we're most proud of as broadcasters in our careers.
3: Beautiful. Um, Kruk, let's go to 2012. What did you see from Matt Kane that year? What do you remember as you were watching him?
2: Well, I just felt that The most important thing as a starting pitcher is to when you walk out on that field, if you have a belief that those eight guys you're playing with believe that they're going to win today because you're out there on the mound, that you've succeeded. And, And that's what you strive for in your career. When you get to the playoffs, that's a whole different animal. For you to be able to establish that same feeling of confidence in your team when you walk across the line in a playoff game, that's, that's unbelievable. That, that, that's You have reached the pinnacle of your game. And that's what Matt Cain represented. When he walked across that, that foul line, everybody on that field believed that they were going to win in that playoff game, in that environment, whether it was in Atlanta or Philadelphia or Texas – or Cincinnati, or St. Louis, or, or Detroit, it didn't matter. When he went out there, they thought they were going to win, and that's how they—that's how we all felt when he crossed the line in that series.
3: Um, during the regular season that year, was was the perfect game as well. If I'm not mistaken, Crook, were, were you at home for that game?
2: Yeah, I was driving up. I had a, a family situation. I had to leave to go back to San Luis Obispo. For it. and when I came back up, I was—I got back in San Francisco by the third inning. I lived across the street from the ballpark and my wife and I we sat there and we opened up the doors of the uh, to of the apartment and we could hear we could hear the roar of the crowd across the street. So we're sitting here watching a game, you know? I, I just got back down, sat down and I was listening to to Kype and John and Dave, the three of them broadcast the game and uh you know, I got a cold one going and I'm watching the game and I'm hearing the the crowd across the street. So that was my experience. It, it was unbelievable and uh it was so incredibly exciting. The guys just did a, such a superb job of telling the story and, and and talking about the the moment and what was happening in that in that stadium and uh, and I could feel it because of the crowd noise that was coming over into our apartment. So that was my experience.
3: Did you think about running across the street when it got to the seventh inning?
2: Well, yeah, but I'd already had two beers, and I thought, eh, I, I, I can't, I can't, I, I don't want to have a, a Rick Sutcliffe moment going over there, you know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, that would that would, <laughs> that would not have been good. Um, Kype, your your call of the Blanco Cats that night was so much fun, it, and it sounded like you were both trying to do the call and somehow contain your shock at the same time that he actually made the play. So Kane, he doesn't want anybody listening to that crowd.
0: And this is hit out into the alleyway. A long run for Blanco, and Blanco's going to die, and he makes the catch! Just an unbelievable catch here in the seventh inning.
1: Well, I think I called it like a fan would call it because there, I didn't think there is any possible way, as far as he ran and where he ended up, that he was going to catch that ball. Uh, I mean, he was fully extended when he caught that ball before before he hit the ground. So oh. I was it was it was it was a, a call of being shocked that he actually made the play for. A, a thousand reasons, the main one, it's, it's – the guy's got a no-hitter. Yeah. And uh, and he makes that kind of a play. And that's the kind of a play that the guy who's throwing the no-hitter sees it, and it makes him think that, oh, I, I, you know what, I, I, I got a shot at doing this now.
3: Um, the World Series that year, we remember Pablo. He's the MVP and whatnot. But, but Kruk, I, I wonder what your overall impressions were of the pitching – in that series because it was just it was elite you know
2: it it was a group of guys that went out and pitched to a plan they all had a scouting report that was really a good one and they all pitched to it and the defense set themselves to the swings they were watching to the the command that these guys were having you look at the command of all those guys and and it was exceptional and I just thought that you know the beauty of a baseball game is the symmetry of of a pitcher and a defense complementing each other to figure out a way to get a win, and that's what that that that's what that was. It was such an incredible melding of of a defense with, with that guy on the mound. I thought they were completely in 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 unison, in unison in sync. And uh, and that's what I you know I, that's that's what I took from that series. Look, they weren't supposed to win a game in that series. They were supposed to get swept. Right. The Tigers were unbelievable. They were an unbelievable team, and, and and the pitchers that they threw out there were incredible. And yet the Giants figured out a way to beat them, and they beat them by playing baseball. And it was just such a beautiful display of of the essence of the game. What is baseball? Baseball is playing and catch, and they played it beautifully and the defense complemented it beautifully and that was a difference in that series
3: by the way we watch what players do to a level we watch what coaches do when the team wins a championship what's the celebration like for crook and kipe what do you guys do in that moment <laughs> well i mean
1: we have work to do i mean uh
3: you know
1: once once the they make the last call we still have a half an hour to talk on, on radio. And then we had TV responsibilities after that. So we had to, to get down on the field, to be hooked up, to talk to the people at, uh, in, you know, Greg Papa. And I think Lasky and those guys were all over there, you know, at their desk. And so we were involved in the post game to uh, from the last out to when we got on the bus was probably an hour and a half. And, uh, but, you know, look, it's a great hour and a half. It's it's not like we're being tortured, that's for sure.
3: Right. <laughs> but then what happens after that? What what happens after you get on the bus? Well,
2: well I mean, it's a party. You, look, I mean, the party starts when yeah, we yeah. get down the field. and and uh, But, you know, the party, you know, we're not there when they're popping corks. All the corks are gone by the time we get down there. Dave is down there, and he's soaking wet, or Amy G, she's <laughs> soaking wet. But, you know, we get down there, and, you know, it's just – you look into the eyes of these guys, and you know you are a part of their legend because you're telling the story, and they know this. And when they hug you, and you know you tell them congratulations, and they look you back in the eye, and you know it's a wet hug. I mean, you know they're soaking wet, and drenched, and just happy having just planted a flag on a an incredibly high mountaintop, and then, you know, you shared that ride with him, and you've been part of it, it's it's the most sincere thank you that you could possibly hear. And, uh, and you know, I, and then you get on the plane or the bus, and then you get on the plane, and it's a party, and it's fun, and it's just, uh, you know, laughs are deep, and and, uh, and the smiles are deep, and, and uh, you don't sleep a whole lot, nor do you want to. It's just... It's just an unbelievably warm, wonderful feeling of accomplishment.
3: And you guys had one more in you a couple of years later. Bumgarner in 14, Kruk. I, I don't know how many f- baseball match what he did in that series. I wonder where that one sits in your mind in terms of individual performances that you've ever seen.
2: Well, once again, they weren't supposed to be – they weren't supposed to win this thing. And uh, But I, I think – from my career to where baseball is today, we've seen the the position of the starting pitcher be completely redefined. They're overly protective. they are no longer allowed to pitch in certain parts of the game, certain innings of the game. They have to have you know a pitch count determines how far they go. They have to have a certain amount of rest before they go back out there. Just if you go back and take a look at at baseball history and the World Series. It, it, it's story after story of guys coming back with, you know, two or three days rest and, and, and being the difference maker, you know, uh, was it Koufax in 65, two days rest against the twins, you know, Bob Gibson, you know, he came back on short rest, um, Denny mclean and, and, uh, and Mickey lowlich you know, the, you know, that's what the starting pitching was, was all about. They had not let any starting pitcher, Remotely, come close to what Bochy let Bumgarner do in, in 2014, and I thought it brought Macho back to the to the role of the starting pitcher. And what he was able to do, from my perspective, having been a starting pitcher, was so wonderful. It brought relevance back to that to that to that position, and, and the way and the way that he did it. If you go back in, in in Game Seven, you take a look at what he did when he came out of the out of the bullpen. Look at how many fastballs that he threw. And the Royals knew it was coming and they couldn't do anything about it. Nothing is more macho than that. And and I just thought that, that what he did was the definition of that of that entire series. And and to be able to be there, watch it, and try to explain to the listening audience as to what was going on with him in his mind, in Bochi's mind. I, that's one of those, that's just one of those things that I was just really proud to be a part of.
3: I like the way you say that. I mean, it was only not even six years ago, uh, but in terms of starting pitching, it feels like it was a generation ago. No question. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Kype, do you have a uh, a favorite call? You know, all I mean, Brian Johnson homer, any of the Bonds shots? There's the Kane game, closing out World Series. It, is there anything that stands out above the rest to you?
1: Well, just the, uh, the final out in 2010. I mean, that's always going to be uh, number one just because of the magnitude that it had for a whole region of Giants fans. And uh, to be able to have the ability to make that call and the opportunity, uh, that's, that's one that's always going to stand out. I mean, 756 is always going to be huge.
2: And here's Bonds. It is so incredible to see a whole stadium stand
0: up at the same time. Locked into every at-bat. Three balls and two strikes. The overshift is on, and Bassick deals. And Bonds hits right high. Hits it deep. it is out of here. 7.56. Bonds stands alone. He is on top of the all-time home run list. What a special moment for Barry Bonds. And what a special moment for these fans here in San Francisco.
1: But uh, but that's a significant number for an individual achievement. Uh, this was a, a terrific team achievement that had never been done before in San Francisco.
3: You guys have become such fan favorites, as you know, and, and the World Series runs add to it for sure. I, I wonder, from each of you, how do you put into words the relationship that has been built between you and the fans of the San Francisco Giants? A gift. Well,
1: it's come very natural. I mean, uh, you know, you you start out as players and uh, uh, you know, you end up being a fan, and uh, and you know, we certainly love our fans, and, and we know how they feel about us, and uh, and we don't want that to change for a long time. I mean, Mike wants to do this a long time. I want to do it for a long time,
3: and,
1: uh, and hopefully, we'll mix in a
2: couple of parades.
3: Kruk, anything you want to add to that?
2: No, just that it was a gift, and it continues to be the gift that keeps on giving. We do not take one game for granted, and really, you know, I mean, at this point mm-hmm. in our career, we probably shouldn't anyway. But we never have. We've always felt that that it was a it was a real it was a gift that we've been able to do this. Look, we've been able to stay in this game and stay relevant as we were relevant as players and now we're relevant as broadcasters. Who who hits the jackpot twice? You may win a, the lotto once in your life, but we've hit it twice. And that's how we've always felt, and that's how we always will feel. It has been a gift.
3: You know, I, I started off by saying this goes so far beyond broadcasting and baseball. Is there a time? Is there a year? Is there a moment where you guys really did start to get – the sense that that this is something more because I, I the word that comes to mind when I think of you guys and the giants and the fans and, and really each other too it's it's uh, it's family it's not broadcasting in baseball it's family
2: well, we feel that way in the giants organization you know we we have the the saying of players that played in this organization you're a forever giant, but what we've found out having experienced these runs together is that you don't necessarily need to have a number on your back to be a forever giant. And uh, we feel that way about all of our people in the, in the front office. We feel that about our ownership group and we feel that way about our fans. We have always felt that this is a special place to play. And historically, (laughs) I, What we've been able to do and the rides that we've been able to take together and the stories that we've been able to share together, they're priceless. And that's something that we hold dear and near to our hearts.
3: What what did it mean to you guys that Bruce Bochy included you in the retirement speech? Well, it cost us a lot of money.
1: (laughs) How's that? It cost us a lot of dinners now. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, look. I think Mike expressed how we feel about him, and 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 how he felt about us. Uh, you know, we he was always very generous with all the information that he gave us, and uh, and he was always looking to take us out to dinner. I mean, he, we did it so many times that it that it just became way too much fun. Uh, and you know, he, he ends up being a great friend. Is what he ends up being.
3: How does uh how does the Hall of Fame sound to both of you?
1: Uh you know well, I, don't I think <laughs> about. It. I d I don't. I mean I, I think if you start worrying about stuff like that, then uh then you need to get out. I I don't even worry about it I don't even think about it.
3: Well I agree. Say? I I think yeah. it's um
2: you know, Hall of Fame is for Hall of Famers and uh, the guys that are in there it you know they're they're there because of, <laughs> they deserve to be there. For us to sit there and say that that we should be Hall of Famers or are Hall of Famers, I, I think is is crazy. You know, it just doesn't happen that way. It's just not what the Hall of Fame is all about. You know, we um, you know we just we just don't ever talk about it. We just don't. You know, and, and I, I think that I'm going to work. With already one Hall of Famer, and I think that that Dwayne is going to be one, and I think that Dave eventually will be there as well. But yeah, it's it's nice to be able to feel that in your heart about the people you work with. Whether it all comes down and actually happens, well, you know, it's so hard to get in there. It's just not something you think about as a player or as a as a broadcaster. You just don't. It just it's you know it just it's, it's just a story that you 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 take your cap off and tip your cap to because of of what it means, but. We don't include ourselves in those conversations.
3: Before we wrap, I, I think all the Giants fans and beyond listening would love to hear um, each of you kind of kind of reflect on on what the other one has meant to your career, to your life through the years.
2: Well, I don't. Well, I get to go know, to work what, every day with my best friend, and we've shared so many things beyond baseball together. We've shared a life where we have children the same age. We've compared notes many times about parenthood. Um, we both lost our parents, and we both have been there to support one another through those times. And uh, and basically all the trials and tribulations of life. You know, it's, it's, it's not a day goes by that we don't phone one another and just talk about it. it's not always about baseball it's a lot of times it's just about life about what's happening right now in our great country you know it has been become the topic of our conversation and it's just nice to be able to have a person in your life that that you respect and uh and go through life together with and and love that you're doing it together and that's what it means it means the world to, to both of us
1: Hey, look, I, 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 I've got, I've got a wife at home, and I gotta have a wife on the road. <laughs> uh, the, you know, I got two brothers. He's the third brother, so I, I, don't think I have to say anything other than that.
3: Guys, this was an incredible treat to uh, to have this conversation. I think it'll be a cherished conversation for. A lot of giants fans so thank you thank you for doing this thank you for all the fun through the years it is much appreciated our pleasure mark thanks for having us thanks so much for listening to inside giant moments presented by t-mobile don't forget to give us a rating and a review and share the podcast with your friends and family for more exclusive conversations subscribe to the inside giant moments podcast presented by t-mobile now